This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. Arthur Conan Doyle, world famous as the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, played real-life detective himself and freed a man wrongly convicted of murder? Why on earth wasn't this story better known? I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. One of the most incredible stories in true crime is the tale of Arthur Conan Doyle and how he helped free a man who was innocent of murder. Author Margalit Fox offers us a deep dive into the characters in her book, Conan Doyle for the Defense. Tell me where it makes the most sense to start with this story, which we're going to unravel like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. Who do we want to start with, the victim or the would-be killer? The victim, and it really does start on the proverbial dark and stormy night. Mm. This is Glasgow, Scotland, a few days before Christmas 1908, and it was indeed raining. It's Glasgow, after all. And on that night, a wealthy 82-year-old woman lived in Glasgow all her life, very, very rich. Her name was Marion Gilchrist. On that night, she was brutally murdered beaten and bludgeoned to death by a mysterious intruder. Now, Ms. Gilchrist was a jewelry collector, and she kept thousands and thousands of pounds of jewelry secreted in odd places in her elegant Glasgow flat. And this is thousands of pounds in 1908. It was a lot of swag. Despite this fact, when the police came and interviewed Ms. Gilchrist's maid, the maid reported that only a single item of jewelry was missing, a diamond brooch in the shape of a crescent moon. That was the primary clue the police had to go on, and it led to all of the terrible events that followed. So where was the maid when this happened? Was she in the house, or did she leave and come back? She was out for just 10 minutes from about seven at night to 10 after seven, buying the evening paper. When she returned, she saw to her surprise, she said, a dark-haired man exit Miss Gilchrist's flat and tear down the stairs of the apartment building and out into the street. The maid, Helen Lambie, then entered the flat to find her mistress severely beaten and expiring on the floor. She died a few minutes later. So if you are a member of the police force, an investigator in 1908 in Glasgow, where do you go first? What did they do? They started interviewing, obviously, the housekeeper and her family, I presume. 
To my knowledge, the maid's family was not interviewed. Ms. Gilchrist, the murder victim, had little family. She was, in the diction of the times, a spinster. Uh, She was not on great terms with her nieces and nephews. She seemed, frankly, rather a nasty woman, though, you know, very upright, righteous, you know, good, church-going Scottish lady of the Edwardian age, and again, fabulously rich. So the police really had only two things to go on at first, the missing diamond brooch and this mysterious dark-haired man that fled the apartment. A couple of days later, the police received a tip that a local man, an immigrant German-Jewish gambler named Oscar Slater, had pawned a diamond crescent brooch. Aha, they think this is a serious clue. So they take the maid, Helen, to the pawn shop, and she immediately says, it's the wrong brooch. My mistress brooch had a single row of diamonds, and this brooch in the pawn shop is set with three rows of diamonds. As Arthur Conan Doyle later said, at that moment, the very bottom of the case should have dropped out, for it meant that if Slater were indeed guilty, it would have meant that by pure chance, out of all the men in Glasgow, the police had pursued the right man, which of course was not the case. So the police knew within a week of the crime that Oscar Slater's brooch was not the one missing from the crime scene. They knew that Oscar Slater was not their man, and yet they arrested him. They framed up a case against him. They railroaded him. He was tried. He was convicted. And the question, of course, is why, knowing full well that Oscar Slater was not their man, did the police go after him anyway? Well, let's go back a little bit for some historical context. 1908 in this area of Scotland, is this high crime? Is there the expectation of an older woman could be alone in her home and have it not be broken into? Was this a surprising crime? Well, it was shocking given the ethos of Edwardian bourgeoisie. It was very much shocking in the context of its time and place. Ms. Gilchrist, of course, lived in a very fashionable part of town, and fashionable people were not supposed to be crime victims. A woman of breeding and bearing, like 82-year-old wealthy Marion Gilchrist, was not supposed to have anything like this Toucher. It was a time of rising immigration, including the immigration of many Central and Eastern European Jews, and therefore in Britain as a whole and in Scotland as well, a corresponding uptick in British anti-Semitism. And it was the classic thing we saw then. We see it now where for various reasons, as a society modernizes, as urbanization takes hold, as crime rises, the upper classes get very anxious. They get very self-protective of life and limb and property, and they need to locate their anxiety in some bogeyman that the historian Peter Gay brilliantly calls the convenient other. Today, we call it profiling. And of course, that kind of behavior was alive and well in 1908 when Ms. Gilchrist was murdered and Oscar Slater, 
foreigner, immigrant, and by the standards of the day, lowlife. He earned his living as a gambler. He frequented pool halls. He earned money at the racetrack and card playing. And even before the murder, the Glasgow police had Oscar Slater in their sights to try to have him arrested as a pimp. It's not clear that he ever was a pimp, but the charge they sought to press, this is the one moment of levity in an otherwise dark story, was called immoral housekeeping. Now, I've been guilty of immoral housekeeping myself in a somewhat different way. (laughs) So it becomes very clear why did the police railroad Oscar Slater, knowing he was not guilty of the murder, was that he was someone they wanted to run out of Glasgow anyway. Along comes this terrible murder with enough circumstantial evidence that they have plausible deniability to make a case against this immigrant Jew. And it's pretty clear their thinking was, we want to get rid of Slater. He might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. And of course, he very nearly was hanged. Let's go back and talk about Oscar Slater as a character. Tell me a little bit just about what his life was like and what his life was like in Scotland. Oscar Slater was born to a working class, I would say actually working poor Jewish family in Silesia. He was the favorite child of the family. His father was a baker who I believe was out of work a lot due to certain physical infirmities. The family lived in just this dusty little one-horse coal mining town in Silesia. Oscar was happy-go-lucky carefree, footloose as a young man. There was nothing in this town for him. So he roamed all over Europe. He lived in Hamburg, he lived in London, and he lived a couple of times prior to 1908 in Glasgow. So he was already, to some extent, in the sights of the Glasgow police. He billed himself as a dentist and a dealer in precious stones, but he supported his rather dandified life. He was a Beau Brummel who dressed in incredible threads and lived very much above what Edwardian bourgeoisie would consider to be his station in life. And he supported this lifestyle through racetrack betting, card playing, and billiards. He lived with his French mistress, and so Oscar Slater was tarred by association with his mistress, and though he was never demonstrated to be a pimp, the Glasgow police assumed that he was and were trying to build a case against him as a pimp by the time he resettled in Glasgow for his third stay there in the autumn of 1908, about two months before the murder of Marion Gilchrist, a woman who, by the way, he had never met and of whom he had never heard until he was suddenly arrested for her murder. Did he have an alibi? He did indeed, which the police suppressed. The case against him, as it unspooled over time, was just a quagmire of the subornation of perjury, the suppression of exculpatory evidence, witnesses who could have alibied him were never called. Other witnesses were told what to say on the stand to incriminate him. And the entire case from start to finish was a textbook example of how police 
and prosecutors can railroad an innocent man. So he is convicted and he is sentenced to the death penalty, right? That's right. Another thing that police seized upon to paint Oscar Slater as guilty, Marion Gilchrist was murdered on December 21st, 1908. A few days later, around Christmas time, Slater and his mistress sail out of Glasgow on a long land trip to New York. There was an economic depression going on in Scotland at the time, even for a gambler like Slater. Times were hard, and he wanted to make a new start in America. He planned this trip for a long time. Needless to say, the police chose to see it as evidence of guilty flight. And so what do they do? They take the maid and two other witnesses who saw this mysterious man leaving Miss Gilchrist's flat. They put them on another ship. They take them to New York. And they coached them as to what to say to try to extradite Slater from America and bring him back to Scotland for trial. They even show some of the witnesses his picture. They even point Slater out as he's being walked down the hall to his extradition hearing by U.S. Marshals. And so right from the very beginning, even months before his actual trial, the case against him is already being fabricated. Slater eventually, naively, decides to waive extradition, and knowing full well he is innocent, he goes back to Scotland and chooses to stand trial of his own volition. And that is where the terrible consequences start to unfold. Indeed, in May of 1909, after a four-day trial at which much perjury is suborned, coached witnesses are parroting the lines that police and the Crown prosecutors have given them. Alibi witnesses are never called. It's just an orgy of the manufacture of incrimination. The jury deliberates for an hour and 10 minutes before finding Slater guilty. The judge dons the traditional black cap and sentences him to hang. What is the time period in 1908 or 1909 when he's convicted? How long are they typically on death row before the execution happens? It's surely not as long as it is now. It's much shorter. 21 days. And this is the really chilling thing. He's been sentenced to death. Now, here, of course, your lawyers would appeal. Guess what? There was no criminal appeals court in Scotland then. Death sentence meant, with rare exceptions, you would die. The only possible way to get around it was to have your sentence commuted by the British monarch, in that case, Edward VII. You literally had to get the king to get you out of jail. And what chance did a penniless German-Jewish immigrant gambler have for the king to take notice. So Oscar Slater is remanded to prison to wait out the three weeks he has to remain alive. He can literally hear his jailers hammering the gallows together outside his cell. He has literally made arrangements for his own burial when 48 hours before he is to ascend the scaffold, his sentence is commuted to life at hard labor. What had happened was this. There was enough public unease about the verdict. 
I think enough progressive thinking people realized how flimsy the case was against him. They realized the role that xenophobia and anti-Semitism were playing, that a public petition was got up to commute his sentence that 20,000 residents signed. And Slater's lawyers sent that petition to the Crown, and indeed, King Edward VII commuted his sentence to life at hard labor. So Slater, within two days of being hanged, is instead dispatched northward to His Majesty's prison, this remote place that was eventually called Scotland's Gulag, this remote granite fortress on a wind-swept outcropping in northeast Scotland. How does Arthur Conan Doyle become involved? I know that literary figures in the 1800s and the early 1900s often followed these really high-profile cases and used them in their books. Is that what happened? This captured his attention for some reason? We believe that in late 1911, early 1912, Slater's lawyers beseech Conan Doyle to look into the case. Conan Doyle, who is at this point world famous as the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and remember, he trained as a physician, and he was very articulate about saying he created the character of Holmes and the Holmes stories to try to bring this tradition of scientific rationalism that was infusing the Victorian age to the formerly rather scattershot genre of the detective story. He gave a wonderful newsreel interview in 1927 that I believe one can still find on YouTube. Mostly he's talking about spiritualism, which was his other great passion. But at some point, of course, the interviewer presses him to talk about Holmes. And he says, it always annoyed me how in the old-fashioned detective stories, the detective seemed to come upon his solution by chance, or else the reader was never told how he got there. I wanted to create a detective who employed the methods of science step by step so readers could follow his thought process and see how he arrived through the use of logical reasoning at the solution. Now, the public knew that Conan Doyle had become famous for this, so they often beseeched him to look into real-life cases, deaths, disappearances, and so on, and he did so. He was a great humanist. He took up a number of social causes in his life, and among them were the solution of real-life crimes, and he, he did indeed solve a number of them using these rationalist methods that he had endowed Holmes with. So Arthur Conan Doyle is reading about this case, which is well covered. I'm sure most people know he's from Scotland. What were the specific things do you think caught his interest with this case? Everything you've talked about, I'm assuming xenophobia, everything. Right. And specifically, the lack of logical reasoning, that really got Conan Doyle's goat right away. As he said, each clue against Slater crumbles to pieces when it is examined. The failure of the police, once they had Slater in their sights, to consider 
any other alternative. And Conor Doyle was incensed, again, knowing both as a physician who had to make diagnoses and as a crime writer who had to have his hero follow clues, he knew full well the danger of fixating on one solution at the outset to the exclusion of all other possibilities. And when you're talking about a man's life, you know, that takes on a whole new level of urgency. The more deeply Conan Doyle read the trial transcripts, studied newspaper coverage of the case, the more he became convinced that although Conan Doyle, as the Victorian man from central casting, upright, moral, he came from poverty, but of course, at this point, was one of the best compensated writers in the world, he deplored Slater's ungentlemanly life. He called him a disreputable rolling stone of a man. But Conan Doyle was so moral and so eminently rationalist that he realized the railroading of Slater and the necessity to write this terrible injustice that had been done to him took precedence over any level of personal antipathy against the man that he might have. Where does he start? Does he start with the crime scene or with the victim or the physical evidence? Crime scene's long gone, the victim's long buried. And so, you know, he was a man of letters. So he started by reviewing the trial transcripts, reviewing press coverage. I suspect that he, as Holmes did, had you know, albums and albums of newspaper clippings about crimes. We, we do know Conan Doyle had a vast, extensive personal library of books about true crime, uh, some of which he bought from the estate of W.S. Gilbert, the Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan, kind of a fun little historical footnote. Mm-hmm. So he was very, very widely read in all aspects of true crime and what we today would call forensics. This is the most remarkable thing about the case. Today, wrongful convictions are overturned, not often enough, but they can be overturned by virtue of modern forensics, particularly DNA testing. None of that existed in 1908 when the murder happened, in 1912 when Conan Doyle published his monograph on the murder, the case of Oscar Slater. None of that existed in 1927 when Slater was finally released from prison or in 1928 when his conviction was formally quashed. All through the agency of Conan Doyle done the old-fashioned way through shoe leather reading and intense rationalist thought as well as because Conan Doyle was by this time one of the most famous and, in a sense, powerful men in Britain. He did a lot of backroom brokering and lobbying with some of the most powerful figures in British politics to try to get this case on the agenda and to try to bring public attention to it. He wrote a lot of letters to newspapers as well, because in those years, that was the primary forum for public discussion of social affairs. What do you think his strongest counter evidence was in this case, where he said, listen to this, and finally people listened because it sounded irrefutable coming from him? Well, there were many things, starting with the 
ludicrous identification or non-identification of the pawned brooch. It was very clear the maid was taken to the pawn shop by the police. She said right away, oh, no, that's not my mistress's brooch. It looks totally different. But pretty soon, because the police knew that the brooch clue was worthless, that clue was kind of swept under the rug. Conan Doyle brought it out again and said the police knew within days that Oscar Slater was not their man. That should have been the end of it. Why wasn't it? And there were many other instances like that where Conan Doyle, just reading closely, could see where witnesses had seemingly spontaneously changed their story. People who couldn't identify Slater as the man seen leaving Marion Gilchrist's apartment suddenly identified him. And so all of these consistencies, Conan Doyle, as both a man of science and a craftsman of detective stories, was singularly well-positioned to ferret out and bring to light. So bad witnesses, and of course, that very bad misidentification, the housekeeper's timeline, right, that 10 minutes she stepped out and stepped back in, is Conan Doyle making the assumption that this is someone who was clearly lying in wait, or was he thinking maybe this was an inside job involving the housekeeper? What we do know, Conan Doyle was an Edwardian man of rectitude and bearing uh, he wasn't going to tar anyone, but it's very clear, and it's it's there between the lines of his monograph on the case, that the housekeeper knew more than she could ever be persuaded to tell. Many, many years later, right before Slater was released, she publicly recanted her identification of Slater as the man she'd seen leaving the flat. She was by this time living in America. The newspapers tracked her down there and with great fanfare published this recantation. Now, she later recanted the recantation. Her story is kind of all over the map over time. She clearly knew more than she was saying there is also evidence that she actually identified the man she saw leaving the flat. She knew who it was. It was not Slater, and it may have been a relative of the dead woman. One of the most striking aspects of the crime scene, and this was something that Conan Doyle, in his writing on the case, threw into sharp relief, was not only was there only the one piece of jewelry stolen, allegedly, with this vast hoard of jewelry secreted all around the apartment. But in one of the bedrooms of the flat, a box had been broken into, and it contained not jewelry, but papers. And the floor of the room was littered with papers as if the mysterious intruder had been flinging them about looking for something. So one of the things Conan Doyle homed in on in his work, he said, what kind of document, save a will, could excite that kind of frenzy in an intruder? And so there is very strong implications that there may have been a fight among family members over this rich old lady's estate while she was still alive. Well, where did all the money go once she was murdered? Who inherited all of this? She changed her will just a few weeks before she was murdered. 
And strikingly, she was very paranoid. She had three locks on her door. She hid her jewelry all over. She apparently told someone about the week before she died that she felt certain she was going to be murdered. This was, fact was not known for years. Wow. Now, that could be just a paranoid old lady whose mind is slipping, or it could be someone who quite reasonably has reason to fear various relatives. Before she died, she changed her will to leave the vast bulk of her estate to one of the very few people she got along with. It was a former maid of hers, now a grown woman with a grown daughter, and this maid and her daughter were going to pretty much get all the money. Well, Marion Gilchrist had lots of nieces and nephews, and it is certainly within the realm of possibility that one or more of them, being aware that she had changed her will or was about to change it, might not have taken that news in the most kindly fashion. Is the idea that perhaps this relative, if there is a relative who did this, paid her current housekeeper to leave the door locks unlocked, and when the housekeeper slipped out, the person came in, murdered her, took the brooch, and then left, so it was an inside job? That is one scenario. It is certainly within the realm of possibility. Skipping ahead, even now, over 100 years on, there has been no suspect identified definitively. Who killed Marion Gilchrist on that December night in 1908 will forever remain a mystery. At the end of my book, I do have a section that talks about some of the more likely theories, more likely candidates, and certainly one likely scenario is that it was an inside job within her extended family. We do know this is a frightened old woman with three locks on the door. She had the technology, as we do in apartment buildings today, to buzz someone in who was on the street who wanted to visit. Her flat was on the second floor. She could buzz them in from her apartment. And while they were ascending that flight of stairs, she had plenty of time to open her flat door, peek around, and if it was someone she didn't know, someone scary, she had time to shut the door, bolt her three locks, and be safe. The fact that someone just came in strongly suggests that Ms. Gilchrist admitted him and it was therefore someone she knew and felt at least reasonably comfortable with. The brooch actually was one of the few, very few, pieces of jewelry that was visible. Mm -hmm. Ms. Gilchrist did kind of nutty things like secreting jewels in pockets of dresses that were hanging up in the wardrobe. She pinned brooches behind the drapery. So most of the tons of jewelry that was in the flat was not visible to the naked eye when you walked in. The brooch was sitting with a few other pieces in a little dish for odds and ends on a dressing table in one of the bedrooms. So Conan Doyle conjectured that the mystery man, the assailant, he was let in by this frightened old lady. They may have had some discussion. At some point, she's bludgeoned to death. He goes into the bedroom, wrenches open this wooden box looking for papers, perhaps a will. Then he hears the maid coming back. She's only gone for 10 minutes, remember. 
he doesn't know who it is. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's the police. You know, the killing has made a lot of noise. Miss Gilchrist, by prearranged signal, has rapped on the floor three times as she was dying to alert the neighbors downstairs that she needed help. Wow. Conan Doyle conjectures that because this diamond brooch was visible, the assailant simply slipped it into his pocket at the last minute as a kind of blind to make everything that transpired look like robbery by some random stranger, when in fact it wasn't at all. What is the reaction of the local police who have been investigating this, have nailed down Slater, have put him on death row, and now you have this literary icon, Arthur Conan Doyle, coming in and messing everything up? Were they furious or did they sort of sit down and shut up because of the political power he wielded in 1908, 1909? They wielded a lot of power themselves, and they, with the Crown prosecutors in Scotland, formed a blue wall of silence, impassivity, and intractability. They stonewalled any attempts to undo what they had done. And from the very beginning, it's clear, you know, this was a bourgeois woman, a rich woman, a respectable woman. This was an age that was all about social standing and social respectability, the kind of person who shouldn't be murdered. Therefore, the case was a sensation in the newspapers. You know, the newspapers were screaming, you know, rich old lady murdered in nice part of town. How can this be? The police, therefore, were under enormous pressure to solve the case. So along comes this circumstantial clue that happens to link them through this crescent brooch to Oscar Slater, a disreputable man, no murderer, but a gambler, whom they want to run out of town anyway. So they seize on this, wrap him up in the Gilchrist murder as a handy fellow to convict. They are literally killing two birds with one stone, getting rid of Slater and getting, as they say on Law and Order, getting a collar in a high-profile case. They're under great pressure to close. So needless to say, they are not going to do anything to undermine or reverse that scenario and expose all of the corruption, the lying, the subordination of perjury, the witness tampering that has gone on. So in 1912, as the result of his investigation, Conan Doyle publishes a monograph the case of Oscar Slater, he deliberately keeps the price low. It's sixpence because he wants the book to be widely bought. And the book lands, nothing happens. I think it was simply too soon. It was only four years after the murder. This brutal, sensational case was still fresh in public memory. And there was still this lather whipped up by the police and the prosecutors and the press of anti-immigrant, anti-Jewish sentiment against Oscar Slater. So Conan Doyle had a very hard time just four years later in persuading the public that the police had attacked and convicted the wrong man. Fast forward to 1925. Slater at this point has been in Peterhead prison since 1909, raking up massive blocks of granite, you know, under the blistering sun or in the freezing cold in the prison quarry, literally, you know, fed on bread and water and gruel. One of his friends, a fellow convict named William Gordon, is being paroled. 
Now, Gordon has a striking thing about him. He wears dentures. And so under his dentures, the day he gets paroled, furled into a tiny pellet, is a note from Oscar Slater saying, please go see Conan Doyle. Hmm. And of course, the prison officials do a body search of William Gordon when he's about to be released, but no one thinks to examine his gums. So he actually does spirit this note out of prison. He goes to see Conan Doyle and persuades him, you know, 13 years after his monograph has come out, to take up the case one last time. And it's only then when public sentiment against Slater has more or less abated a lot of the most nefarious principles in the case against him, police officers, member of the Crown Prosecution Office, a lot of them have died. It's only then that it becomes possible for Conan Doyle to take up arms once more, and this time the time is right. That was the beginning of the end of Slater's incarceration. He's released at the end of 1927. His conviction is formally quashed the next year. What is life like for Oscar Slater after his release? He's been there for so long. His wife, I'm presuming, is gone. This is just a a brand new life for someone who obviously is going to be heavily institutionalized. That's right. And he's not released till 27. And with a war in between, remember, his family's in Germany. So one of the most gut-wrenching things is for the whole of the war, from 1914 to 1918, Slater can exchange no correspondence with his family. You know, his parents are already elderly. And after the war, he gets a letter from one of his sisters back in Germany saying, you know, dearest Oscar, I must now tell you about the deaths of our dear parents. All of his correspondence has been preserved, which was a boon for me. And and the letters are, especially that one, are just gut-wrenching to read. So he's in prison from 1909 to the end of 1927. When he goes into prison, he's in his late 30s. When he comes out, he's only in his mid-50s, and photographs from his discharge, he looks like a man of almost 90. I mean, the years have not been kind to him, nor would they be to anyone who was breaking up blocks of granite in the quarry every day for 18 and a half years. He adjusted to life on the outside really remarkably well. He lived in a small town. Uh, He lived in Ayr, a seaside town not too far from Glasgow. He started an antiques business. He was always a tinkerer, so he would buy and refurbish things. Uh, He had a modest income in the form of reparations from the state for his wrongful incarceration. He was apparently convivial, well-liked by his neighbors. Here's the thing. When he got out, he was a man without a country. The Scottish authorities badly wanted to send him back to Germany on his release. The case was so notorious, they didn't want any reminders of it hanging around, particularly not the flesh and blood big reminder in the form of Oscar Slater himself. They discovered to their dismay that a German who had been out of Germany for 10 years or more lost his citizenship. And of course, Oscar Slater had been locked up in Scotland for 18 and a half years. So he couldn't go back to Germany. He was in a sense stateless. So he stayed 
in Scotland, in this country where these terrible things had happened, as you say, his French musical mistress slash sex worker left the scene very, very early. Slater remarried a much younger Scottish woman, apparently very, very happy marriage, liked by his neighbors. He died in his bed in Eyre, Scotland in 1948. In a blood-chilling way, this terrible case that almost cost him his life and left him as a man without a country may well have saved his life because he, as a Jew, was not able to be back in Germany in the 1940s. And one of the most devastating things of the book is we've gotten to know his parents and his sisters through their loving letters to Slater in prison and his to them. His parents by this time had died of natural causes. His sisters never made it out of the Holocaust. Mm. So in the bitterest of bitter ironies, this terrible wrongful conviction ultimately may have saved his life. Did he reconnect with Arthur Conan Doyle after this? Did they have many conversations about this? Or when the case was done, that was it? They actually met in person only once. Conan Doyle, again, for various reasons, held Slater somewhat at arm's length. He approached the case purely as an intellectual and ethical problem. He did not correspond with Slater directly. Again, he... In good and bad ways, Conan Doyle was a Victorian man. He had tremendous morality, tremendous probity, but he was not free of Victorian class prejudices. And it was clear that he found Slater's kind of demimond life distasteful. So he handled the case by himself and through intermediaries. He and Slater actually only met once at the 1928 hearing to formally overturn Slater's conviction. Conor Doyle was there covering the case for a British newspaper. They greeted each other very warmly. One of the things that was really a kick in the chest to me when I was researching the case was I spent a week at the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh. The case was in Glasgow, but there was a change of venue and the trial was moved to Edinburgh, the capital. So there are records on the case in both cities. At the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh, I spent a week going through all of these files on the case that are in date order over about 20 years. And the very last folder in the last file box had a heading that took my breath away and not in a good way. The heading was Conan Doyle v. Slater. Hmm. And I thought, my God, Conan Doyle actually had to threaten to take Slater to court to recoup some of the costs that he had outlaid in the course of exonerating him. And I was so rattled when I saw that, I said to myself, I'm going to go back to my hotel, I'm going to go to sleep, and in the morning, when I come back to the archive, this file won't be here. (laughs) And of course it was, and I had to deal with it. What had happened was this, partly with Conan Doyle's help, Oscar Slater had gotten 6,000 pounds compensation for wrongful imprisonment from the British government. That was a lot of money in 1928. Now, Conan Doyle had outlaid a certain amount of money in getting things printed and published, in paying people who did some of the legwork. And although he could well afford to pay, again, he was such a principled man, he was 
shocked and embittered and scandalized when Oscar Slater declined to reimburse him for that outlay. And of course, from Slater's point of view, Conan Doyle was rich. He didn't need the money, whereas he, Slater, was from a poor background. He'd spent almost 20 years in jail. This was the money he was going to live on. So they were both right. And what was so painful but so telling about this last coda to the story was that even after all of this time, all of Conan Doyle's involvement in the case, neither one of them was really equipped to understand the other. And there was still this kind of unbridgeable class difference between the two. Mm -hmm. In the end, the case was settled more or less amicably without it actually having to come to trial. But there was this really bitter rupture between the two men at the end. Very, very painful, but again, very much a product of its time. And luckily, you have a hero in Arthur Conan Doyle who has acquired all of these real-life skills of a detective. And I know that he was, you know, by the end of Sherlock Holmes, by the end, he was sort of sick and tired of it. And this was such a fantastic application of his skills. The Oscar Slater case was truly Conan Doyle's last stand as an investigator of real-life crime. And it was a terrible, dark, and painful case, but it was ultimately a triumph for both Conan Doyle and Slater in that he not only got Slater released, he got him officially exonerated. He got the formal conviction quashed. He even got him some compensation. And so all of this wound down over sort of 1928, 1929, and then Conan Doyle died in 1930. So it was truly the last hurrah of this upright, complicated, ultimately extremely moral, extremely rationalist Victorian man. And I say, you know, it was perhaps only with Conan Doyle's death in 1930, what historians call the long 19th century was well and truly over. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. Our mixing engineer is Ben Talladay. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.